I want to ask you to turn this morning to the book of Haggai. We'll give a little extra time to find Haggai. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far, and so go left from Matthew. Haggai is a a little two-chapter book at the very end of the Old Testament. And we're going to read Haggai chapter 1, and then we're going to go over and read the first six verses of Zechariah's prophecy. So we'll begin our reading in Haggai chapter 1. Haggai 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste, and ye run every man into his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hand. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month, in the second year of 
Darius the king. And then over to Zechariah chapter 1, just the first six of these verses. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Amen. We'll end our Bible reading there at the end of verse 6. Let's seek the Lord together in prayer and ask his help as we come to consider his words. Our Father, we come before you asking that you would send your spirit to every heart today. We pray that you would give us humility before your word to receive it as it is your word receive it in truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We read these two passages together because Haggai and Zechariah were God's prophets after the children of Israel were released from Babylonian captivity. They were together preaching to the 50,000 faithful Israelites that had returned to rebuild Jerusalem. If you just make a note, it's Isaiah, I'm sorry, Ezra chapter 2, verses 64 to 65 actually tells us that to be very technical, there were 49,897, but who's counting? 50,000 that had obeyed the Lord and after the release by Cyrus, these faithful ones went back to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the temple and establishing the right worship of God. The year is 520 B.C. To be more exact, it's August 29th, 520 B.C., that Haggai begins to preach. And he preaches for two months. You'll see Haggai began in the sixth month, and Zechariah according to verse 1, began in the 8th month. The Lord sent these two prophets together to encourage and instruct the people. Now there's no doubt at all that their message was a great message of hope and a message of restoration for the people, restored back to their land. In fact, it's important for us to note that only the Psalms 
is quoted more often in the New Testament than the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is the second most quoted book by the New Testament writers. It's also important for us to note that per verse, there are more references to Jesus Christ in the book of Zechariah than per verse in any other book of the Old Testament. Isaiah may have a higher number of references, but Zechariah is more packed full of references per verse. Both of these prophets give words of hope, but they both begin their prophecy with a call for so I want to preach to you this morning a message titled, A Call for Remnant Repentance. A Call for Remnant Repentance. That's who these 50,000 were. They were the remnant. I think it's legitimate for us to argue that they were the best of the bunch. Of all the ones that had been in captivity, they were the ones who were trying to be faithful. They were the ones who had a heart and a desire to rebuild the temple, to establish the right worship of God, to put things back the way that they were supposed to be. But both of the prophets that the Lord sent begin with a message of repentance. One preacher had quite a witty thing to say. He said, you might expect Zacharias preaching to be a pat on the back, but in reality it was a pat on the seat. These needed a good kick in the pants to get going in their service to the Lord. And so this morning I want to consider this subject with you, a call to remnant repentance. And I want you to see, first of all, that repentance is a divine command even, even to a faithful remnant. Repentance is a divine command even to a faithful remnant. Look at Haggai's language. Look at verse 5 of Haggai 1. We're going to be back and forth between Haggai 1 and Zechariah 1. and it, it should probably be just one page in your Bible back and forth. But look at Haggai 1, verse 5. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. And look at verse 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. The fact is, these people had been doing one thing, and the Lord was calling them to do the opposite thing. The Lord was calling them to change directions. Look over at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Zechariah's language. Therefore say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. That word turn that you have in verse 3 is the Old Testament word for repentance. It is a word that indicates to us in, in the way that it's used throughout the Old Testament of something that is going in one direction, it stops, it turns around, and it heads in the opposite direction that it was going. It is the Old Testament word for repentance. Many would have looked at these people as 
the ones who were going in the right direction. They were the 50,000 that returned to Jerusalem to try to do the right thing. As I've used this phrase already, they were the best of the bunch. If they lived today, they would be the ones that I like to refer to as the ones that eat at Chick-fil-A and shop at Target. Okay, they were the ones doing right. They were the ones who, who actually had something of a heart for the Lord. There were a lot more than 50,000 people in Babylon. When Cyrus released them, they didn't all go to Jerusalem. They scattered all over. They, they dispersed all over. It was only a faithful remnant that went back to Jerusalem. And so this was the best of them. But yet God had a very different opinion of them. I wonder if you've ever really seriously considered what God thinks about the things that we do. Have you ever thought about what God thinks about all the excuses that you make? to justify your actions and to justify your own sin. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Well, God says, consider your ways. God says, turn unto me, even to the faithful ones. These are his words to them. So what is it that God has called these people to repent of? We can begin in Haggai. I would say, first of all, he's called them to repent from misplaced priorities. Repent from misplaced priorities. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 of Haggai. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses? That word sealed would have the idea of siding. They didn't have vinyl siding, but paneled houses. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your paneled houses and this house, referring to the temple, this house lie waste? Now therefore saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The Lord rebuked the people for making their own personal welfare a priority over rebuilding the Lord's house. The temple had been destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar entered into Jerusalem and, and sacked Jerusalem and, and conquered the city and took all the people into Babylonian captivity, he, he, he destroyed the temple. He, he, it was in ruins. The people who returned were there to rebuild this temple. You, you can read in Ezra, Nehemiah, you can read the account. These people had come back about... 20 years previous to Zechariah's sermon. And in, that, in those 20 years, early on in that process, they had begun to lay the foundation. And, and there were some who saw that foundation and they began to weep because they remembered what used to be there. There were others who saw it younger that had never seen the original temple and they were just thrilled to death that the temple was being built. They, they were 
They were laughing. Others were weeping. And the Bible tells us that in, in that, you, you couldn't tell between the weeping and the laughing. I heard one describe it this way, that the original temple was approximately the footprint of a football field. And then take a tennis court and impose a tennis court on top of a football field. And that was what the new temple was going to be. A much smaller thing. They had built this. They, they had started the foundation of it. And then they had abandoned it. And nothing was being done. And status quo set in. And they began to be convinced that what was around them now was normal. What around them was normal. But yet God had better. God had more. I wonder if you've ever looked around and asked yourself the question, is this normal, or does God have more? Have you ever looked at your family and how things are going in your family and asked yourself, is this normal, or does God have more? I wonder if you've ever looked at the church and said, is this normal, or does God have more? Well, I'm here to tell you God has more. God has greater things than this. God has more. Misplaced priorities. That's what the Lord was calling them to repent of. And consider these words very carefully because the Bible very often speaks to us about our priorities, does it not? Let me read you just a few verses. Job 23, verse 12. Job says, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Food's a priority. But Job says, I esteem the Lord's words even more. Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first, primarily, seek ye primarily the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 16, 26, for what shall a man be profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? If he makes this world a priority, and loses his soul, what profit is there in that? Colossians 3, verse 2, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. The Bible is full of, of references to us about making the Lord our priority. The very specific application that we have here before us in the book of Haggai is the Lord's house to be a priority. These people were taking care of their own homes. We can extrapolate from that. These people were taking care of their own business. They, they were managing their own finances. They were making sure all of, all of their welfare and their prosperity was taken care of. And the Lord says, wait just a minute. What about my house? You're, you're satisfied with my house lying in ruins while your house is prospering. I'm often very amazed at how many Christian people really in essence do not make the Lord's house a priority. The Lord's house, going to church, if we can just use that language, should be the excuse that you have 
to miss everything else rather than everything else being the excuse that you have to miss church. Why would you not want to make use of every single opportunity that you have to gather with the Lord's people? Why would you not want to do that? Is it hard? Absolutely. Is it sometimes a sacrifice? Of course it is. I'm not going to pretend like it's not. It's hard. It, it can be difficult. I heard a story about Martin Lloyd-Jones. When people would come to Martin Lloyd-Jones for counseling, he would tell them, come to all the services of the church for a month. And if you still have a problem after that, then come back to me and I'll counsel you. He was convinced that a regular diet of the preaching of the Word of God was sufficient to deal with the vast majority of problems that any of us will ever face. Your child's bedtime is not more important than the Word of God. Getting all your ducks in a row for Monday is not more important than the house of God. Family time is not more important than the house of God. It just simply isn't. It just is not. The Lord rebuked these people making their own business and their own welfare a higher priority than the house of God. Now, obviously, church attendance is not the only place that believers get their priorities out of line. You get your priorities all out of line with your Bible reading. You get your priorities all out of line with family devotions, with praying, with evangelism, with every spiritual activity that you engage in, your priorities all out of line. That's part of the sinfulness of human nature. We prefer ourselves more. We want to take care of me first. But the Lord says, no. The Lord says, consider your ways. Consider your ways. So Haggai calls the people to repent of misplaced priorities. But we come over to Zechariah chapter 1, look at verse 4. There, he calls the people to repent from their evil ways and their evil deeds. He says in verse 4, Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Those that Zechariah that, that was preaching to, they were obeying the Lord in many ways. They were faithful in many ways. They had a lot that was right. They were the remnant. But he reminds them about the sins of the fathers. And too many of those fathers that had gone before had set a bad example. Our brother Jim Friday night, 
thought what he said was just tremendous. And, and I, hope, I hope you all caught, caught the heart of what he was saying when he reminded us of all those in Scripture who were supposed to be leaders of God's people, but they failed. And instead of leading the Lord's people into godliness and into holiness and in the ways of righteousness, instead led the people into sin. If you turn over to Second Chronicles, just, just very quickly, over to Second Chronicles, it's right at the very end of, of the historical books of, of chronicling all the kings. And there's kind of this summary statement when it comes to the end of it all. Second Chronicles 36. Look at verse 14. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the admonitions of the heathen. I'm sorry, abominations of the heathen, and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people so there was no remedy and what's next is captivity there was no remedy God had sent prophet after prophet he had sent messenger after messenger and they wouldn't listen and God says there's no remedy punishment captivity and here comes Nebuchadnezzar and off they went you know what Zechariah is saying here in verse 4? Is that a bad example from the past is no excuse for disobedience in the present. That's what Zechariah is saying. A bad example in the past is no excuse for disobedience in the present. Our society wants to blame everything on the problems of the past. They just simply refuse to take personal responsibility for their actions. But I'm here to tell you as complicated and as tragic and as confusing as your personal unique situation might be, nothing your mom or dad ever did to you or ever said to you is a valid excuse for your sin. No sin of the past, no mistreatment of the past is an excuse for present sin. If I could address you young people, some of you young people think your parents are idiots. And you think they don't understand. And let's just pretend for a moment your parents are idiots. Does that give you an excuse to disobey your parents? And in disobeying your parents, ultimately rebel against the God of heaven? No bad example from the past is an excuse for disobedience in the present. Zechariah tells the people to turn from their evil ways and to turn from their evil deeds. We have here a figure of speech called Hendiades 1 through 2. Two statements that really encapsulate one. God is telling them to turn from everything that is against the will of God. Or to use Paul's language that he uses later in 2 Thessalonians, abstain from all appearance of evil. That's what Zachariah is saying. Just abstain from all appearances. Don't do it. 
So Haggai focuses on repenting from misplaced priorities. Zechariah focuses on repenting from evil ways and evil deeds. But Zechariah also, in this verse number 4, tells us that we have to repent from ignoring the word of the Lord. Look at the end of verse number 4. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. That was their sin. That was their sin. They didn't hear and they didn't hearken to the Lord. There are some that are challenged and corrected with the word of God and they simply won't listen. They simply refuse to listen. There are others who are challenged and corrected by the word of God who listen but simply won't change. Some come to the Lord's house as it were, with spiritual earplugs in. And, and as a fool, they don't pay attention to the Lord's words to them. They sit, as it were, with their arms crossed in rebellion to what God would ever say. They sit, as it were, with their ears plugged in rebellion to what God would ever say. And they make excuse after excuse after excuse as to why what they're doing is perfectly justified. And it doesn't matter how they're confronted or who they're confronted, whether it be by pastor, pastor, elder, or deacon, they simply refuse to listen to the Word of God. Some comes to the Lord's house with a great zeal to hear and listen. And they'll take notes. And they'll amen the preacher and all the rest of it. But they're just like that man in James who beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway. He's a hearer of the word, but not a doer, because nothing ever changes. It just stays the same. 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes as silly women, and it obviously can be a silly man too, laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They hear, but they never change. Which person is worse? person who won't listen or the person who won't change? Well, the fact is Israel had both, and the church today has both. But what Zechariah says is don't be either one. Don't be either one. God is calling his people to repent from ignoring the word of the Lord. So in Haggai and Zechariah's call for remnant repentance, we see, first of all, that repentance is a divine command even to a faithful remnant. But secondly, I want you to see that the fear of the wrath of God should lead us to repentance. Fear of the wrath of God should lead us to repentance. Neither one of these prophets shies away from telling the people that God is angry and that God is displeased with their actions. Neither of these prophets were being mean. Neither of these prophets were being hateful in declaring such a truth. In fact, they would be mean and they would be hateful to lie to the people and to give the people only comforting words. Now, don't misunderstand because as you keep on reading in the book of Zechariah, you see that Zechariah does preach to the very comforting words. I've already told you there's more references to Christ 
her verse in Zechariah than any other, ver- any other book of the Old Testament. Zechariah is the one who, who tells us about the Lord coming unto thee, riding on a donkey, coming into Jerusalem. Zechariah is the one who tells us of that branch that is to come. Zechariah has very comforting words, as does Haggai. Words of hope, words of encouragement. But they start with a warning of God's punishment. A warning of God's wrath against sin. Look at how Haggai and Zechariah use the wrath of God as a motivation for repentance. They both They both preach this truth that God withholds blessing from his disobedient people. Look at Haggai 1. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord, consider your ways. You've sown much, but your crops don't produce a lot. You bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, your thirst is never really quenched. You've got clothes, but they don't keep you warm. You've got a good job. You've got a good paying job. But it's like putting money in holes with a bag with holes in the bottom. You never get ahead. Look down at verse 9. You look for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it, I did blow upon it. This is the Lord talking. I did blow upon it. Why? Why did the Lord frustrate their efforts so? He says, because of mine house that is in waste. And you run every man to his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I, that is the Lord, I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon the laboring hands. You wonder why these people, they were looking around and they planted their crops. They were following all the latest agricultural methods and they just weren't getting the increase. Their, their vineyards just weren't producing Things just, things were just not going. Why? Because of their sin, the Lord had stepped in, and the Lord said, I sent a drought to your situation. I wonder, how many have financial troubles? And it never seems that you can get ahead. There's always something else that mysteriously comes that you have to spend your money on. It's like month after month after month. You can't explain it. You've got a good job. You make good money. You get to the end and there's nothing left. What in the world? This is a very delicate subject for preachers to preach on because it it often comes across as self-serving. But I hope you can understand that it's not. But I ask you simply the question, 
Do you tithe regularly? Do you give to the needs of the church? Do you tithe to the Lord's house? If you disobey the Lord in tithing, I'm thoroughly convinced He will withhold blessing from you. I'm convinced of it. I've experienced it in my own life. But when the Lord will change your heart to tithe, call it 10%, call it whatever you want to, I don't care. I think it's a heart thing rather than a calculated thing. But when you tithe, those things that keep coming up, they mysteriously go away. I can't explain it. But I would encourage you to talk to Christians that have had a regular pattern of lifestyle, of tithing. And they'll tell you. All those problems that seem to creep up all the time, they just don't. The Lord provides in ways that you get to the end of the month. It doesn't make any sense. But there's still money left over. God's not vindictive. God's not saying, fine, well, you won't bless me, then I'm not going to bless you. That's not what this is about at all. But there's a law in Scripture of sowing and reaping. And if you don't sow, you're a fool to expect a harvest. You're a fool to expect a harvest. You sow and you reap. What you sow, you reap. You know, if you don't faithfully and biblically, biblically discipline your children, then don't be surprised when your children are a grief and a heartache to you. If your discipline is unreasonable and anger, don't be surprised when they rebel against that discipline. But you reap, you're so. Haggai tells us that God withholds blessing from his disobedient people. But Zechariah, when we turn over to Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 6, we see there that God actively punishes his disobedient people. Zechariah 6, look at the end of that verse. Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. God promised to punish. And the people did exactly what the Lord told them not to do. And what did God do but keep his word? God said, if you do this, if you, if you sin in this way, I'm going to send the heathen. And they're going to take over. And you're going to be exiled out of your land. Isaiah preached for years. Jeremiah preached for years. And the people wouldn't listen. They wouldn't hear it. They throw Jeremiah in a pit. They wouldn't listen to him. Moses had told the people that this would happen way back in the wilderness. That they would be taken over and they would be driven out of their own land. And God punished them. God kept his word. God's chosen people were not exempt from his wrath. Now please don't, don't please, 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 Please do not misunderstand. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. If you're in the gospel, there is no condemnation 
and eternal punishment for me. But don't misunderstand that verse to mean that God will not punish your sins for you. God punishes the sins of his people. And we have to bear the penalty of our own sinfulness. And so often it's our own stupidity and our own foolish decisions and our own sinfulness that gets us into such a mess. And God punishes our sinfulness. He punishes our stupidity. Zechariah 1 verse 2, the Lord's chosen people. He says, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Was he sore displeased with the heathen? Well, of course he was. But Zechariah says, the Lord was sore displeased with your fathers. And he punishes them. He punishes them. So in these two prophets, we've seen that repentance is a divine command even to a faithful remnant. And secondly, that fear of the wrath of God should lead us to repentance. But I want you to look at Zechariah 1 and verse 3 and see finally this morning that the Lord is faithful to forgive his repentant remnant. The Lord is faithful to forgive his repentant remnant. Therefore thus saith unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, for what's going to happen? I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. If you look at verse 3 there, actually if you look at this whole opening of Zechariah, you'll see your Bible there, the word Lord in all capital letters. This is a reference to Jehovah. This is a reference to that one who is the covenant-keeping God of Israel. These covenant promises go all the way back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. For Adam, even before the fall, but especially at the fall, God spoke with Adam. And he said, I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to send one who's going to crush the head of that serpent. And I'm going to provide a means whereby all your sins can be forgiven. And God made that covenant with Adam. And then he made it with Noah. And with Abraham. And with Isaac. And with Jacob. And with Moses. And with David. And with Solomon. And over and over, God renewed these covenant promises. And the prophets would come along and the prophets would echo the substance of that promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Over and over, the prophets echoed the substance of what that covenant is. Turn unto me and I will turn unto you. If there was ever a prophet of hope, it was Zechariah. Zechariah, even in the midst of a call to repentance, he gives that message of hope. You repent of your sins, you turn to God, and God will turn to you. God will receive you. You will not be cast away. I'll preach on this in a few weeks, but turn over to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, I won't read all this. You, you 
in, in this congregation are very familiar with the story. In a, in a night vision, Zechariah was shown Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and he was standing there in his filthy garments. And Satan was there hurling all the accusations about how awful he was. And you know how that vision unfolds. The angel of the Lord says to take away those filthy garments and give him a change of raiment. A beautiful Old Testament picture of the taking away of the sins of the flesh and us being clothed with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Zechariah has that message of hope. Look down at chapter 3, verse 9. There we read, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In one day. As providence would have it, we read John 19 about that day when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. That was the day that Zechariah was talking about. That in one day, all the sins of his people, Joshua the high priest represented the people of God. In that one day, all the sins of the people were taken away. They were removed. They were paid for. They were dealt with. The manifestation of God's wrath and judgment against sin was poured out, just as it had promised to be done. Solomon, when he dedicated that first temple, he said, if my people, which are called by my, my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will hear them heal their land. In the New Testament, the Apostle John puts it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even in, if I can go back to the words of that preacher, even in the pat on the seat, there's hope. There's restoration for repentance. Where's your heart today? What specific sins do you need to repent of? Because you see, true repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry, and moving on as if nothing has happened. Repentance needs to be specific. So saying, Lord, I repent of not making your house and your worship a priority. Repentance is saying, Lord, I repent of my covetous spirit and not giving to you what you were due. Repentance is saying, Lord, I repent of not faithfully leading my family in the way that you've commanded. I repent of neglecting the Lord's day. I repent 
my life is perfect. I repent for my cold heart. I repent of my pride. I repent of a wandering heart from the things of God. I repent for my sins of disobeying my parents. I repent of my sin of fighting with my siblings. I repent of my sin of not we're very aware of that story in the Old Testament where that man cried, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. What if we all would cry out, Lord, I repent, but help thou my unrepentance? Help thou my unrepentance. The Lord has promised to always be faithful to his word. And his word to us this morning could not be more clear. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Father, we do thank you this morning that your word is that word that breaks the rock in pieces. Pray that you would deal with each heart here today. We, we're a faithful remnant. We love you. We want to serve you. We want to do what's right. We don't want to sin. We don't want to be among the heathen. We want to be a separated witness for Christ. As we've seen from these verses today, even among that faithful remnant, there is a need for heart repentance. And we pray that you would grant it to us all. We ask in Jesus' name.